Uh, turn your Bibles to the end of Jonah. We're in chapter 4. We're in the chapter that is always left out of the children's books. If you've read Jonah in a children's book, you might not know what happens next because this is the part that if you're an editor and the, the script of Jonah gets put on your desk and you got to figure out how to make this story ready for the big screen, uh, you're, you're cutting out chapter four. <laughs> this is the chapter that we, we really don't know what to do with. I remember as a kid, I had um, actually one of the few children's storybooks that had the whole story of Jonah. It was a, a storybook just of Jonah. And I remember it vividly because it wasn't the cartoony kind of pictures and that kind of art. It was the realistic looking stuff. And I remember being mesmerized by the picture of that giant fish and it had this bulging eye and it's swallowing Jonah. And I remember I'd read through and I'd look through all the pictures and I'd get to this last chapter. Now I understood Jonah running from God. I understood the, the, the sailors throwing him into the sea. That all made sense to me. I understood that after he failed the first time that he was going to go back to Nineveh uh, like God told him to and he would go. I understood that when he did that, that Nineveh responded to the message. That all made sense to me. But it had this last part that was so confusing. I had no idea what to do with this. I didn't have a category for Jonah chapter 4. And yet, Jonah chapter 4 is the point of the book. Many of us, if you've only kind of have a, a surface understanding of this book, you, you have kind of the contours of what I already described. That story is already there for you. The, the, the whale is right there in the middle of the story. The running from God, you get that. You get the Nineveh. But chapter 4, this weird interchange with God and Jonah is a strange piece of the story you really don't know what to do with at first glance. What does this all mean? I think if you're a, a movie director and you got to work with this Jonah book, you're probably ending it at chapter three. Let's be honest, right? You're probably doing a little polish. You're making it a little different. You're probably going to make the story end at chapter three is all Nineveh repents. And they, in your movie, grab Jonah and hold them up and celebrate and there's a slow-mo panorama of all the good things that have happened because of the sermon and, and Jonah maybe goes back to Israel as a great national hero. That's not how it ends. It's not how any of it, this happens. In fact, we come across something that's so confusing, a little bit bewildering that we got to pause and, and look at it and say, what's happening here? If you just rush through it, you're going to have no idea why it's here. And I'm going to say again, this is actually where the point of Jonah shines. This is where we get the point of Jonah. I'm going to read it to you. And you're going to see two basic things, two major headings. And then we're going to go into a little more detail in them. But the first will be Jonah's attitude. You're going to see that. And second, you're going to see God's response to Jonah's attitude. That's our two kind of major headings of the sermon this morning. You'll see it in the text. And then we're going to go in a little more detail. Let's read through the whole thing. And then we'll move through this. Chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Just for context, so you remember, Nineveh gets saved. Pagans of the capital of Assyria 
citywide revival, citywide repentance, God saves them, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh, oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being for a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Here is the lesson of the book of Jonah, right here in this interchange between God and the prophet. All that's happened is led up to this conversation. And this conversation between God and Jonah is meant to put Jonah's heart on display on one hand and God's heart on display in the other. And as we look at this, we are intended to see both. And what this text is doing is not only examining Jonah's heart and letting us see what his heart is like, this text is going to read you. Because you will have to encounter this text and these questions, and you will have to be examined by God as well. This is where the book ends. And if you notice, in verse 11, it ends with a question. Anytime a piece of literature ends with a question, the question is significant, and it's obviously not intended to merely be another uh, giving of the information of simply something that happened in the past. And when this letter, when this book of Jonah ends with a question, the question is meant to jump off the page and direct itself right at the reader. That's what's happening in this. We are going to find ourselves as the ones being examined here. And we're going to see it come to play in this interchange, in this conversation between God and Jonah. And so first, let's look at Jonah. Let's look at his attitude here. In verse 1, we get his attitude coming right 
right out of the gate, very obvious, not hiding anything. His heart is on his sleeve. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. That was the thing I just didn't get. Any preacher who would go and preach to a group of people wants to see them respond to his sermon. I've never met a preacher that doesn't want that. I doesn't, I've never heard of anyone who gets up there and wants uh, the people to be snoozing on him while he's preaching. He's like, he wants that. I've never heard of anybody that would be angry at a good response to a sermon. And I have been like, why would Jonah do this? He responds to this massive revival that God used him to spark. And he walks out of the city and he is angry about it. To understand why he's angry, we've got to do a little context. You've already heard that Nineveh was not exactly nice and friendly to Israel. Nineveh was the capital of the nation of Assyria. Assyria was a world power at this point. Assyria was a wicked nation. We looked at the origins of Assyria. You can go bring it back to Genesis chapter 10. The nation was founded by a man named Nimrod. His name means, we will revolt. And revolt they did. They were never interested in the things of God. It was always an enemy nation. Assyria and the other nations started by Nimrod, Babylon, are always in Scripture these anti-God nations. In fact, Babylon will come to represent the whole anti-God systems of the world. These are, and this is a nation that is known for being wicked. Nation, the nation of Assyria in particular had a military strategy that was more like terrorism than anything else. They were cruel and known for their cruelty. They were violent in some ways for the sake of being violent. They had a sort of bloodlust about them. Uh, some have said it's not even as if the Assyrians especially liked expanding their boundaries. Uh, it wasn't necessarily they're trying to become more economically stable and that's why they're doing what they're doing. Uh, the historians seem to indicate that Assyria simply liked to be violent because in their violence they could assert a sort of power over people because pe the people were afraid of them. They were a threat. They existed right to the northeast of Israel. And their power and their growth and their wealth would always represent to Israel a threat. Whenever Assyria grew or increased in power, that would be a threat to Israel. Israel saw the wealth and well-being of Assyria as a threat to them. In other words, if, if you're an Israelite, you don't like the prosperity of Assyria. You don't want them to do well. Now, if you remember who Jonah is, who's Jonah? Jonah is, he's, he's mentioned one other time in the Bible. You remember in 2 Kings chapter 14, Jonah is mentioned as the prophet who prophesied the expansion of Israel's borders. What that means is he was probably well known for being a prophet who was pro-Israel. He was probably well-loved. He might have been thought of as a patriot. There's other indications even in the book that he strongly identified with his Hebrew heritage, proud of it. And so this man who loves Israel would not like Assyria to be doing well. They're a threat to him. The better they do, the more inconvenient it is for him. 
So you might ask yourself, well, why didn't Jonah go and preach a message of doom? Isn't that what Jonah was told to do in chapter 1? God says in chapter 1, verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it, for their evil has come up against me. Uh, maybe you would think that Jonah would hop up and go, okay, I get to be the prophet that predicts the doom of uh, the enemy of Israel as well. I'm going to go right to the heart of the capital. I'm going to be the prophet that announces the doom. And yet, that's not what he does. What does he do instead? He got up and ran. Now, the author of the letter of the book has not made it clear why. We can surmise all along the way why he would run, but Jonah's heart comes out in chapter 4, verse 2, as to why he ran from God. Here's why he ran. He prayed to the Lord and said, this is an awkward prayer, by the way. This is, this is not one of the few times Jonah prays, and it's, it's not the kind of prayer that any of us should imitate. He says, oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? <laughs> that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I knew you would save him. I knew you would save these people. I don't want you to save these people. He didn't want them to be saved. The reason he's so angry is he doesn't want the Ninevites saved. What's interesting to me about this verse here in verse 2, he, he clearly knows his, the, the scriptures. Jonah knows he's quoting the Bible against God. Do you see that? He's using the Bible against the author of the Bible. He's, he's trying to point out, I knew you were this way because your word says you're that way. What well, really is at the heart of this, Jonah just doesn't like God at this point. He doesn't like God. He doesn't want God to be the way God has already said he is. He just doesn't like it. I knew that you would be gracious. I knew that you would show mercy. I know you're slow to anger. I know you abound in steadfast love. I know you relent from disaster. And I don't like it. That's why I ran. He's got a heart that's out of sync with God's heart. He would rather, listen to this, he would rather have his own personal convenience than demonstrate any kind of compassion. Jonah has detached himself from the well-being of the people of Assyria and Nineveh. Jonah does not grieve with their grief. Jonah does not care about their sin and its coming judgment for their sin. He has a prejudice against them to the degree that he would rather see them judged than saved. This is not the heart of God, clearly. Jonah knows the heart of God. It's revealed to him. He doesn't like it. Jonah disagrees with God. He has not attached himself to Nineveh. He has detached himself. He has a prejudice against them. He doesn't care about what happens to them. Because if they get saved, what happens to him? What happens to his beloved nation Israel? In Jonah's mind, it's a perceived threat. Their salvation means inconvenience for me. And let me tell you, grace can become very inconvenient. Compassion, to share in God's compassion, can make your life oh so inconvenient. I remember when I was at the church in Fallbrook, it was the first church I served at, 
there was this, uh, this season of life in the church that was kind of fascinating. There was a, a prison ministry that just blossomed. And suddenly all these inmates, ex-inmates, were getting released from their sentence and they started coming to our church, our little tiny Baptist church. And we get these ex-cons coming in. Long hair, tattoos, totally dressed them different from anyone else, kind of stink a little bit. They have, they have no idea what the proper protocol for church attendance is. No idea. I, someone's preaching, they're yelling things back at the preacher. They, they start showing up to our small groups and they're asking these questions out of left field. You're, you, they don't know anything about the Bible except they're coming and they're so hungry, they, they wanted to learn. The prison ministry's taken off and, and they, they're gathering. They're, they're sometimes cursing in conversation that things are slipping out that they shouldn't say and they're just messy people. But man, they were hungry. They wanted to hear the word of God. They were there every Sunday. It's in the front row. They were eating it up. They wanted someone to teach them. And one of the most unfortunate seasons of that time at the church is there was a group of people in the church that were used to the convenient, cozy way of doing church in the past. They didn't want any of this mess. These people are messy. They're, they're changing everything about our little nice church here. They say bad words sometimes. They kind of stink a little bit. They smell like smoke when they walk in the door. They, they got... Uh, rough edges. I don't know if I want them in my group. And uh, my small group's going to be totally different if I have to deal with this person. I really had a good relationship here. It was all going swimmingly, and these people start showing up. Compassion can be costly. Compassion can be costly, and it can make your life inconvenient. And certainly, this is what's happening to Jonah. If God is going to be gracious to Jonah, or sorry, if God's going to be gracious to Nineveh, it's going to be very inconvenient to Jonah. He's not going to like it. There might be even people in your life that you know that they should receive compassion. You know that they need grace. They need someone to extend a hand of mercy to them. You know that, but you also know that if that's going to be you to reach out and show compassion and show mercy, it's going to be messy and costly. You might think about inviting your messy neighbors to church. The only problem is that they might actually show up to church. And you got to sit with them. It might be a family member that you're like, I know they need the Lord, but man, they're so hard to deal with. And so you might think about sharing the gospel with them. The problem is they might get saved. <laughs> now they want you to disciple them. Now you're the one meeting with them week in, week out. Someone you didn't want to have anything to do. See, Jonah has detached himself from these people. He does not care if they're judged. And listen, you could do the same thing. We can do the same thing in our own lives with people we are prejudiced against. They make our life hard, so I will detach from them rather than attach my life to them in love and care. Jonah is so far from the heart of God right here. He would rather see these people judged and condemned for their sin than be inconvenienced. In, in his kindness responds just real quick here verse 4 the Lord said do you do well to be angry Jonah's so angry he says he wants to die Jonah, Jonah has to deal with God just, just asking him these gentle questions God is like a counselor here Jonah doesn't even respond to God look at verse 5 
doesn't even respond to God. He, he goes out, verse 5, Jonah went out of the city, sat to the east of the city. He made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what should become of the city. Let <laughs> I me mean, just picture this, right? Jonah on the deserts of outside of Syria. Not a lot of wood there. Finding sticks, trying to make himself a booth so he can get some shade. It's pathetic, really. He's trying to fix something for himself. And really what he's doing in this verse is he's hoping that God will still judge Nineveh, right? He's sitting there watching what would become of the city. He's hoping upon hope that God will go back on his grace and that he would still condemn the city that he wants to be condemned. I want you just to think about this right now. It's, it's really pitiful what Jonah's doing. He's absolutely blind to God's heart and therefore he is blind to his own problems, isn't he? He's blind to his own sin. He, he's, he's the rational one here, so he thinks. He thinks he's the right one here. God's wrong for doing what he did to save the people. I'm right, and I'm going to go sit here until you agree with me, God. You do things my way, God. I'm wiser than you, God, and I'm going to wait until you come around and figure things out, okay? And so he's out there trying to stack together some sticks so he can build himself a little booth, and he gets a little thing up, and it's a little bit of shade for him in that desert sun. But really what's happening here is Jonah is completely blind to his own sin. He's convinced he's right. You see that? He's convinced he's the one who's right. I want to just reflect a moment on the, the condition of the human heart. The heart is a mystery to us. There's very, very many passages in Scripture that refer to our inability to understand our hearts. You can think of immediately of Jeremiah chapter 17 where Jeremiah cries out the, the wick, about the wickedness of the heart and who can understand the heart. Read the book of Proverbs. The heart of a king is unsearchable, it says. Our own hearts are mysteries to us. They're like deep wells. We, we can't always see what's there at the bottom. We don't always know what's motivating us. We don't always know what's driving us, what's fueling us. This is clearly happening in Jonah. He, he's driven by something so deep within his heart, so lodged in his heart, he has no idea that he is totally headed the opposite direction as the heart of God. He doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know why he's doing it. He's just kind of operating out of anger. Uh, he, he's, he's mad. He thinks he's in the right. He thinks God is in the wrong. He doesn't see the, the error of his heart. He doesn't see the desperation that he ha is in, the need that he has of the grace of God to correct him. He doesn't notice any of that stuff. He's just caught up in his tantrums, sitting outside the city, waiting on God to turn around and come after him and follow him in his ways. Friends, we don't often know what's going on in our hearts, do we? How many times have you done something or said something to your spouse or to a friend only to reflect later and go, why did I say that? What have I done? What, what was... What was going on in there that made me think it would be a good idea to do that at that point? Often our own hearts are just so wily, hard to understand, hard to know, unsearchable. I remember when my kids were even littler than they are now, one of them had a toy, precious toy, beloved toy. 
And the other came up and grabbed that toy and ran off with it. And I had to track the perpetrator down and <laughs> have a conversation. And I leaned in and I asked, why did you do that? Why'd you take it? It's not yours. And she answered with profound theological precision, I don't know. <laughs> Isn't that true? I don't know. Why? We don't know often the things we're doing in our hearts, the motivations. Uh, people have said that our, our hearts are like a, a boiling cauldron of desires and motivations. It's, it's so hard to know why we do what we do. Why are you here? Is it really because you love God and his glory? You want to see him glorified. It's not about you. It's about him. Or have we slipped into some other motivation? Sometimes it's hard to know, isn't it? I mean, we really are, in a sense, just like Jonah in this. We can get involved in things with attitudes that we don't even really see. We, we don't even really know what's going on in our hearts. We're not quite understanding our motivations. We're just kind of doing these things, going through life. And we could be out of sync with God's heart and really have no idea. You realize that? Jonah has no idea. And we could be just like Jonah in this. We have no idea that our hearts are distant from God, and yet we're going through the religious routines like a Pharisee. He's out of sync. He has no idea. And, and, and God, because he loves Jonah, is going to enter into a dialogue with him. God is going to respond to Jonah's blindness. And in this interchange, we are going to be examined. God is going to respond. Okay, so we move now from Jonah's anger, Jonah's issues. Now we're going to look at God's response to Jonah. And as God teaches Jonah, he teaches us. He teaches us to see our own hearts and to evaluate whether we are in sync with his heart and his loves or if we've turned away. Here's what he does. The first thing he's going to do is he's going to give him an experience, an experience. Look at verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant made it to come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Okay, so God's going to teach him something. He starts by giving him an undeserved blessing. Do you see this? He appoints a plant. This is miraculous. He's harnessing creation to teach a lesson. He makes it grow with miraculous speed. It grows up over the little booth that he's created out of the sticks. It's growing up all around him. And it, it saves him, it says. It saves him from his discomfort. Jonah was suffering a kind of discomfort in the hot sun. And Jonah is then provided this leafy vine of sorts that grows up around him. And it, and it gives him some measure of comfort. What's Jonah's response? It says he's exceedingly glad. Oh, is he so glad. He gets so glad because of this plant. See, God is teaching Jonah something. I want to note just real quick here that 
sometimes we can associate good things in our lives, good things that come into our lives with the thought that God agrees with us. I got a, I got a, I got a raise. God must be agreeing with my lifestyle. I got a blessing. God must be agreeing with the things I'm doing. I, 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 I'm taking the good things in my life, the affirmations that I'm on the right path. Not necessarily. Some churches say that because so many people are showing up to their services, that must be a sign that they're doing things right. I've even heard of pastors excusing their own sin because, hey, look, the church is growing. The sign of God blessing is not an indication that we are doing things all right, that God is necessarily agreeing with everything we're doing. God will bless people when he chooses to bless people, and it is not always an indication that we are doing the right thing. Jonah is a case in point. He is in rebellion. His heart is so far from God, and yet God is acting to save him from his discomfort. He is blessing him, and he has not deserved it for one second, and God is not saying, it's okay that you're rebelling. Don't take a sign of ble a blessing as a sign of God's approval of your sin. But that's not the only experience. He, he continues, verse 7, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm. You know, you could go to Romans 9 to argue for God's sovereignty. You can go to Ephesians 1. You can go to all kinds of passages and scriptures. How about going right here? God appoints a worm. Is God sovereign? Amen. He's sovereign over the worm. He's sovereign over the plant. He will be right here. We'll see in a second. He's sovereign over wind. He appoints a worm to tax the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah, so he was faint. This is such a dis, dis horrible, uncomfortable situation for Jonah. In light of all the other things that have happened, he asks that he might die. You see that? And he said, it's better for me to die than live. God is teaching Jonah by giving blessing and removing blessing. You see that? He is giving and he's taking. He, in his sovereignty, he decides to give comfort and to remove comfort. What is he doing? He is teaching Jonah something. God always teaches his people through providence. You understand what providence is? Providence is God's running of the universe and from the, from the supernova down to the worm. God is in control of every last detail of our lives. And we can know that as we are led through life by God, God appoints things. Just as he appointed a plant and a worm and a wind, all things in our lives are God's divine appointments that he is giving and he is taking. He's bringing us through experiences to expose something about us, to teach us something about himself. Those of you who have been uh, married, you know this. You think you're a pretty good person. You think you don't really struggle with pride very much. You think you're pretty humble. You get married. And then right there on the big screen of your life is... Pride, pride, pride. You see it flashing, glaring at you. You're prouder than you thought. And then you think, okay, I'm going to get over this. I'm going to grow. Um, and you, you, you do grow. You, you become more humble. You recognize, you repent of your pride. You're, you're growing in Christ-likeness, and then you have kids. <laughs> and then it's all in HD. And, and now you're seeing that the pride that you, you did grow, but now you know it's still there. There's still issues. And what is God doing? He's teaching 
you through your life experiences. He is a shepherd for you, leading you through. But you have to be going through experiences where your heart is being drawn out, where you're seeing what's really actually within. The pressures of life are squeezing you, and the juice comes out, and you get to see what's really you're made of. Do you really trust him? Do you really trust his sovereignty? Do you really love him? Is your heart really aligned with him? Because look what happens with Jonah. There's two times this word exceedingly is used. You see it? It's used first in chapter 4, verse 1, where he's angry, exceedingly displeased over what? The salvation of the Ninevites. The second time that word exceedingly is used is to describe how he's exceedingly glad. What's he exceedingly glad about? The plant. Do you see how the experience is drawing out the heart of Jonah? It's being really clear that Jonah's heart is not aligned with God's heart of compassion. It's his own selfish heart that's addicted to convenience. You see that? He is exceedingly glad when his life goes well. And he's exceedingly angry when something happens, even if it's the grace of God that ends up making his own life inconvenient. Friends, where do you get exceedingly angry? And where do you get exceedingly glad? They'll say a lot about your heart. What has your heart? This last week when you got angry, what was it about? You can follow that anger down to uh, your heart and you'll find an idol there. It's something else that has got your affections. You could follow even your joys, the things that make you exceedingly glad, and you could see, well, what's there? Jonah's not happy about lost souls getting saved. He's happy about a plant that makes his life more convenient. Jonah's world has shrunk to the size of his own comforts. He likes the thing that make his life easier. He hates the things that make his life harder. Even if the things that make his life harder result in the salvation of other people. God doesn't leave him there. He's going to continue to teach. So first he's given him an experience. This is often what God does. But secondly, he's going to give him an explanation. This is how God teaches us. He not only brings us through life experiences, but he has given us his word to teach us. He explains the things we're going through. Yes, not in specifics. You don't get your own personal Bible where God explains to you in detail every last thing you're going through, but God has given us his word as a grid, as a framework to understand all of life. This is what God now does. In Jonah's situation, God speaks to him to help him see what's happening. Why? Because God's going to, again, like a, like a good counselor, he's going to draw out God's or Jonah's heart. He's going to help Jonah see what's really going on in his heart. Look at verse 9. But God said, now God speaks. He, he's addressing him. He's drawing him out. He's speaking to him. He's going to explain something to him. God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Is, it, is this good for you? Is this good that you are so wrapped up in this plant that you're so angry about it? Jonah, still in self-justifying pride, says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And Jonah gets a lesson here, an explanation from God. 
And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in the night. He's being taught here how to interpret this experience that he's just gone through. You got this plant. You love the plant. You got attached to the plant. Now, God is gently like a counselor. Again, gently. He's not accusing him. He's not judging him. He's right now talking to him, drawing him out, helping him see where his heart is. You, Jonah, you pity a plant. You didn't work for it. You didn't make it grow. It came and it lasted one day and it's gone the next day. It's not an eternal soul. You're so wrapped up into the plant. So God provides an explanation for him. God's teaching him. And friends, this is how we live life. Let me just point this out real quick. The experiences of life are happening with Jonah and then the explanation comes. And as you go through life, you're going to face all kinds of different things. You're going to have all kinds of different experiences. And the way you interpret your experiences is through the explanation. The Word of God is your explanation. You don't do the opposite. You know what the opposite is? You read this, and then you go through life experiences and let the experience interpret your reading of the Bible. That's the backwards way. That's where you let your experience decipher what truth is. The re real way to go through life and what God has demonstrated to us here is that as we live, we let God speak to us and we let him define what's true. We let him define what's really happening in our hearts, in the world, what he's doing. He is the arbiter of truth and he's given us his truth in his word. So let's not flip that around. Let God's word explain your experience. Don't let your experience explain away God's word. And so God gives him a little explanation to help him understand what's happening here. He's pointing out again the contrast between his heart and Jonah's heart. Jonah, you love a plant. Jonah, you're wrapped up in a plant. Jonah, you're caring for something that lasts one day. You didn't do anything for it. Jonah, this is what's happening. Jonah has to sit here and listen to this, to learn from God. And here's the third way that God teaches, and the last way, it's an examination. God asks a piercing question. This is the question that becomes the point of the book. God says, and should I not pity Nineveh? Should God show compassion to wicked, cruel, violent, undeserving sinners? Should he do that? Well, let's think about what that even means to do. Look at that word pity. I'd encourage you, if you are one that marks your Bible, pity would be the word to mark right here. Notice it. Should I not pity Nineveh? What's interesting is that God used that word previously to refer to Jonah's attachment to the plant. You pity a plant. I pity a lost city. 
The word has to do with the, uh, the idea of compassion, a depth of compassion, so real, so genuine that it attaches itself to others and feels their grief, feels their sorrows, feels their pain. It enters in voluntarily into the lives and sorrows and struggles of another, and those sorrows and those burdens and those struggles become felt by, owned by, carried by the one who has pity. Recently, the Durso family, that's us, has had some car issues. My parents heard about this, and I got a call from my mom a few days after, and she said something along the lines of, I'm paraphrasing, something along the lines of this, when we heard, we felt so bad we couldn't wait to hear if it was going to work out okay. She hinted at the reality that she and my dad had been waiting around to hear and how they were grieved at our issues. This is a small picture of what compassion is. It's a real picture. It's a true picture. A small hint of what, what God is like. Ye, someone has a problem. I feel it. Someone has an issue. It becomes my issue. They have a burden. It's my burden. They grief. I, I, I shoulder their grief. I can't wait to hear from you. I want to know how it's going because that problem now is my problem. My love has attached itself to you. I love you. When you suffer, I suffer. It's amazing that God uses this word to describe himself. He's saying, should I not have this sort of pity on Nineveh? Should I not feel a grief, a compassion for the lostness of this city? The indication is that God is brokenhearted in a sense over the lostness of these people who were to be saved and to become his children. He saw them in their sin and he did not detach he saw them in their rebellion, their anti-God ways, and he did not detach. Rather, his heart was welling up within him with compassion for these undeserving people. This is what compassion is. It is a vulnerable love. You want to be invulnerable? Don't love anything. You want to be vulnerable? Learn to love. And if you learn to love, you will be walking the path of vulnerability because you will then share in the burdens and sorrows and struggles of the people you love. Parents, you know this instinctively. A kid goes down hurt and in pain, your heart hurts. A child walks away from the faith you taught them, you grieve. Their suffering is now your suffering, their pain is your pain. Isn't it amazing that God says this about himself? Genesis chapter 6, verse 6. He looks down on his creation. He looks down on the wicked world. And it says, it grieved God in his heart. This doesn't mean that God isn't sovereign. This doesn't mean that he's changing. God is immutable. He does not change. This is what this means. Let's be clear. This is what this means. This means that the self-sufficient, infinite, 
omnipotent God who needs no one. He did not love us because of a deficiency in himself. He did not love us because he was lacking and he needed someone to fill his void, and that's us. He is self-sufficient. He needs no one and nothing. But he voluntarily chooses to set his love on undeserving rebels so that in their suffering, he's grieved. Their sin, he's not indifferent to it. He's not detached from it. He chooses to be afflicted in our affliction. He chooses to be grieved at our sin. So the heart examination's right here on the table. You pull Jonah's heart out and it's, it's something wrong with it. Can't you see it? There's something wrong with Jonah's heart. There's, a, there's an idol, a cancerous idol that has leached itself onto the heart of Jonah. He is worshiping this God of convenience. He is therefore unable to show the compassion of God. He would rather see these people judged by God than to show them compassion. Should God pity Nineveh? I hope we say yes. If we say no, then there's no reason God should pity us either. But if we say yes, if we agree, then it's good that God pities the wicked. It is good that God shows the undeserving great compassion. If we say yes to that, then we got to look at our hearts and say, do I do too? Is it right for me? Some have said that these questions that God asked Jonah, especially this last one, they're like arrows from God being shot at Jonah. And then we read to the end of the book and we realize that Jonah doesn't appear after God's last question. And so they've said that this last question is like an arrow that suddenly Jonah's not there anymore in the picture and we see it coming off the page and hitting us right between the eyes. Because the question now that is before us is where is your heart? God has made the contrast crystal clear that his heart is a heart of pity and compassion for those who do not deserve it. Jonah has made his heart crystal clear that he's wrapped up in the conveniences of his own life, even to the degree that he would rather see people lost and condemned forever than to go out of his way to make sure that they get the message of God's saving love. Here's where it gets convicting, guys. Looking at your life, trying to evaluate your heart. Are you more about the compassion of God? Reveling in it, enjoying it, glorying in it, and demonstrating it in your own life to those people who don't deserve it? Even at great cost to yourself? Or are you like Jonah? Your God is your convenience. Your God is your comfort. And you would rather detach from the sin and suffering in this world 
Because for you to move forward, for you to attach would make you vulnerable and it would cause you to lose some of that precious convenience that you love. Are you pursuing your comforts or God's purposes of compassion? Are you bothered by the reality that there are people all around us going to hell without a savior, without a gospel to hold on to? Does it bother us? Or are we more bothered by these inconveniences that come up in our lives? Your AC breaks, your car won't work, there's issues at home. This last week in Simi, you maybe have seen it on the news, not only in Simi, but all over Southern California, there's been fires. You probably noticed this. I remember a few years ago, um, during one of these flare-ups of fires, there was a picture taken at a golf course where in the background you saw this whole mountain seemed to be aflame. And yet right there in the foreground, there were three men on a putting green, putters out, acting as if nothing was going on all around them. The picture kind of became viral, it was passed around the internet, and it, it just was this stark and interesting picture because you had these people that seemed to be completely unaware of the havoc and wreckage and destruction all around them. There they are just taking their time putting around on this golf course. Are some Christians like that? the world around them facing utter destruction apart from Christ. And we're puttering around, pursuing these nice games, pursuing the comforts of our own posh lives while the world perishes. I've tried to make this point throughout this whole book. You weren't made to watch humanity go away from God and not feel anything. You weren't made to watch people live under condemnation in threat of eternal judgment and not feel a heart of compassion for them and not do anything. You weren't made to do that. You end up like Jonah, so wrapped up in your own comforts that when your comforts are taken away, you'd rather die. You were made to live for the heart of God, the glory of God, modeling the compassion of God. To go where it hurts you, to go at great cost to yourself, to go in sacrificial love to people who don't like you or want you or think they even need you and to give them the only thing that could actually save them. And so the question is just drills us right between the eyes. Do we have a heart like Jonah addicted to convenience or a heart like God? compassionate, willing to go into the fire, to inconvenience ourselves, to rescue those who are perishing. Reflect with me for a moment on the compassion of God. How far does his compassion go? If we're going to model our compassion after his, let's ask ourselves that question. Well, how far does God's perfect pity go? How far does his compassion go? 
He sees his lost children in pain, doesn't he? He sees them in their sin. And rather than detach himself from their sin, from their guilt, from their suffering, he enters into his own creation in the person of Jesus Christ. He enters as an infant, taking upon himself flesh, fallen flesh. He catches a cold. He lives under the normal things of the curse, though he himself is perfect and sinless. He does not detach himself from the reality of human suffering. He, he enters right into it. He touches lepers. He talks to outcasts. He goes to the poor. He reaches out to the least of the least, the worst of sinners. The New Testament often will talk about Jesus as being moved with compassion. He will weep. God incarnate will weep over the lostness of his people. This is the depths of compassion of our God. He does not stand back aloof, indifferent to our pain and our suffering. He enters in in the person of Christ and in the ultimate display of compassion. He goes to the cross. He would rather bear the weight of our sin. He would rather suffer in our place than us suffer for our own sins. What a Savior. What a compassionate God. He's entering into our world, taking upon the sins of all his children. He is paying for their sins for them in full, totally, completely, bearing their penalty. He's doing it for them. And if you, maybe you've never believed that, can look to the cross with eyes of faith and say, he's done that for me. He did that for my sin. He did that for me to be reconciled to God so my sins could be paid for. He rose from the dead. He's alive right now in me by faith alone with no works attributed, no merit at all. I could be saved. Yes, God is that compassionate. He's that good and he's that kind. Friends, the cross is where these themes of Jonah become crystal clear. How compassionate will God be? He will send his son, God incarnate, Jesus Christ, to go to a cross, to die in the place of his children so they don't have to die forever. He will conquer death. He will rise from the dead and he will forgive everyone who casts themselves at the feet of the Savior in repentance and faith. If you're not a Christian, I invite you to the cross right now and to see that cross as your salvation and to see the risen Lord as your only hope and that you by faith alone can be forever and completely forgiven of all your sin. Why? Because God is compassionate. So Christian, where's your heart? Do you follow the compassion of God? Is your heart well up like God when you see the sin and suffering of the people around you that you say, I want to move into their issues and be a help to them, to be compassionate to them, to show them mercy? 
or would you rather worship your own convenience and not get yourself too messy in the messy lives of the people around you? The arrow hits you between the eyes. What is it? You can't do both. Compassion like God or convenience like Jonah? That's the point of this book. Do we share God's compassion or do we worship convenience like Jonah? Let's pray. Lord, we first of all confess that there are often times and situations in our lives where we prize convenience more than compassion. We recognize that is sin. We recognize that that does not demonstrate your heart. We recognize that we are often out of sync with your heart. And Lord, we confess that knowing that you are generous and gracious and powerful and able to transform us. So Father, we ask, transform us, correct us, change us from the inside out so that we really would reflect your great heart of love to the world. Make us more like your son, Jesus, who did not run from suffering but ran right into it to preserve us from eternal suffering. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.